Welcome to Material Feels, a monthly podcast based out of Oakland, California, where we explore the intimate relationships between artists and their materials. I'm your host, Catherine Monahan. I've got a lifelong background in art. By day, I'm a copywriter for an art supply company. By night, I am recording this podcast in a repurposed storage closet. (laughs) Each episode of Material Feels is an opportunity to spend time with someone who connects with a material every day. Season one has covered clay, wool, wood, liquor, the body, and today we'll be catching the feels for a material that is sculptural and emotional, highly personal yet universal, sound. My name is Liz. I use the moniker Liz Delise uh, for performing and writing and all that good stuff. Man, what am I working on right now? I mean, mostly this podcast because, you know, COVID has everything um, performance related pretty much at a standstill. Liz is a Philadelphia-based musician and composer. Liz is non-binary. Their pronouns are she or they. They make music for modern dance, podcasts, film, and they front their band, also called Liz Delise. Liz has also been on the Material Fields team from the start, contributing an original piece of music inspired by each material we cover. They are also the assistant producer for the show. Today, we'll be exploring their relationship to sound and taking a closer look at the five songs they created throughout season one. We'll also be referencing guests from each episode, so since it's probably been a while since you listened, or maybe you skipped around and missed an episode, here is a super quick recap. For episode one, we chatted with art educator and ceramics instructor Matthew Duke. Really gravitated towards the potter's wheel. I had had uh, a short background in mechanical work, in like machine work, and working with steel, aluminum, working on a lathe, very similar to working on a potter's wheel. So the difference is that when you're working with metal, it takes hours and hours to make a shape, but the potter's wheel was instantaneous. So I sort of had a natural instinct for the potter's wheel, but I just really loved sitting at the wheel and sort of, you know, time warping. You just sort of just lose yourself on the potter's wheel where your brain doesn't do anything. You're just there physically working with your hands and then, you know, hours go by. Then for episode two, we visited a wool mill with weaver Danielle Garber. It's just that it feels so structural and so tightly woven, but I will always just run my hand across the the weaving and you can just feel the fibers and there's a softness to it. There's like a contrast to me and I I just, I, I love to feel that. In episode three, we spent time with woodworker and furniture designer Dominique Tutwiler in their workshop in San Francisco. I really want to make custom furniture accessible to as many people as possible. And I know that I can serve a very like specific group of people here in the Bay Area who I'm sure like have this have had the same challenges with having a an, an apartment here um, and just not being able to find that perfect piece. I really just want to kind of make that an option for everyone and just kind of yeah create for those for those people and keep solving those those problems that we all have with living in a cramped city. <laughs> then we raised our glasses with craft cocktailer Redwood Hill in episode four back in Oakland by Lake Merritt. I've always been I guess a bit timid about some of my more academic artistic aspirations and so this seemed like a good place to kind of couch my creative 
desire to engage with folks and to create things that people are not only interacting with, but they're also ingesting. And just last month, we took some deep breaths with body worker and musician Grasho Logue Sargent. I think I do a lot of listening in my practice more than I do anything else. Listening, observing, reacting to that. I feel like music is a, a great complement to body work because it's, it's kind of like a play, you know? Like when you're working on someone and you're feeling, you're feeling feelings that are kind of like reverberating off of them. When I'm working on people, generally I feel like sometimes I'll feel like the drama of an emotion unfolding in a muscle. Like someone feels the struggle, they'll either be verbally saying it or you can just feel it come up in their muscles and their tissue where it's like, it's like there's knots and chaos and then it's like a smooth ride out. It's like a whole storyline inside of the body. Just in one line that I could draw down the body. We've got Matthew and Clay, Danielle and Wool, Dominique and Wood, Redwood and Liquor, Grasha and the body. Oh, and side note, Liz and I have known each other for over a decade. If you want to really challenge every fiber of your being, try interviewing your BFF while maintaining some semblance of your professional identity. What brought you to sound initially before you became in a band and a professional musician? Um, what initially brought you to that material? Uh, a story that my mom likes to tell is that when I was little, I um, I am about the same age as one of my cousins. Um, and so, you know, like when you're growing up with somebody that's like having has the same like developmental milestones and stuff as you do, of course, like the kids are going to get compared and like she was talking right away, really verbal. And I wasn't saying a word. And my mom was like, I don't know what is happening. Like, I don't know what to do. I was just like building things and I wasn't really saying anything. And I just didn't really like care about other people. And then one day as she describes it, you opened your mouth and released the most beautiful soprano note I've ever heard. <laughs> like, I mean, it's probably not that beautiful. I might have just been like screaming, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> she was like, you're going to be a singer. I can feel it. She's going to be a star. <laughs> and then and then at that from that point on, I was like, I, I wouldn't shut up. Liz's childhood was rooted in music from an early age, and not just because of that early soprano note. Both my parents are musicians. My dad is a composer and has been a professor of music and a percussionist and performer. He does like, you know, kind of like your typical uh, musician, just does everything. And my mom is a singer and um, and she's also a, a writer. It was just kind of always around. I never really, it was always the way that I was able to express myself in, a, in something that grounded me and something that I could always come back to when, you know, things were difficult or when I, you know, didn't necessarily have uh, the capacity to process things um, that were happening in my life uh, verbally or like, you know, even just by writing or journaling, it was just a really, it's like a, always a, a friend I could come back to. Do you remember the first song that you that you wrote? What was it? What was it like? I just remember like writing things that really cracked me up as a little kid. And even though like a lot of my writing now is, you know, it's like definitely about bigger emotional, like just difficult stuff that I'm trying to work through. I also 
really like making people laugh and I like trying to bring levity to things and I try not to be too self-serious because I am a very, I can be a very serious person. I ask Liz what kind of difficult topics she might touch on in her music. Uh, my parents' divorce, <laughs> my mom, uh, romantic relationships and monogamy and marriage, my gender. Oh, dreams. I write about my dreams all the time. That That's like, I feel like how my my brain really speaks the, the most clearly to me is, is in my dreams. And that's how I like process all of that I don't want to deal with in waking life. Sound is a powerful medium. While it's not a visual medium, it's quite spatial, even sculptural once you begin thinking of it as a material. Sound is a vibration that moves through space at a rate that produces an audible wave of pressure. The frequency of a sound depends on how often those waves occur. A high-frequency sound will have a higher pitch, like birdsong, while a low-frequency sound will have a lower pitch, like a cat purring. The act of listening isn't just hearing with our ears, it's a full-body experience. Our heart rate slows or quickens. There is tension, anticipation, release. Maybe there are goosebumps. Different regions of our brains light up with activity. Our dorsal amygdala, our frontal lobe. Heaps of dopamine. The architecture of sound, specifically the art of shaping it into music, choreographs a series of movements within our bodies, an unfolding of emotion. This creates a link between sound and feelings, a connection between music and emotion. And as we experience a material together, an intimate connection between the producer and the listener. I mean, music is like rhythm and like you said, the ability to recognize an emotion um, in a certain sound uh, or even just like that a certain emotion is evoked from a certain sound is, I mean, that's like an innate human ability. It's some, we're all, we're all born with a, with a sense of rhythm and a sense of musicality, which I mean, is, is evident in for most people, the way that we uh, communicate, like just the cadence of how we speak is musical. We are born with a certain sense of musicality, whether we are a hearing person or not. Folks who are deaf, for instance, feel vibrations with the same region of the brain that hearing folks use for listening. And our relationship to sound can change over time. Hearing loss, tinnitus, or other conditions may force us to adjust to a changing soundscape. Also, the sounds we choose to surround ourselves with, if we have control over that, are incredibly personal. This goes for preferred radio station, to our living environment, to our voices even, the way we communicate. Sound is such a vulnerable uh way of uh, presenting yourself or a part of yourself to the world, especially because we do have these biases of like, what is a, what is a good sound? What is a bad sound? What is, you know, even just thinking about like harmony, like what, what is a happy sound? What is a sad sound? What, what kind of voice is a professional sound? What kind of, uh, I mean, there are just, what kind of words are quote unquote professional? Like there are just so many, I, I could get up on my like semi-informed soapbox and go on about about that especially like with the Black Lives Matter movement and thinking about how I how I tone police people you know as a as a white person and thinking about like how you know I like many other people of all 
backgrounds grew up with an idea of like what is acceptable and what is, again, what is professional? Like, how do you need to speak? And I'm thinking about as like somebody assigned female at birth too, like we're talking about wanting to sound more masculine, right? Why do we want to sound more masculine? Liz is referencing a conversation that the two of us have had about non-binary, genderqueer, or gender non-conforming identities. There are ways that folks can affect the voice to feel more in line with gender identity on any given day. But Liz brings up an important question about the impact of society and the influence of what mainstream culture dubs powerful. Is there a thin line or blurred space between performed gender and authentic self-expression? Again, this is a podcast with a lot of unanswered questions. I think about this a lot like with vocal fry and how vocal fry became such a thing and how there were like for like a while there were like all these stories about like who has vocal fry like vocal fry is like when at the end of your sentence it goes down here like this and then also oh in that same kind of world I remember hearing stories about um how most people who identify as women or were assigned female at birth learned to make statements in the form of a question like I just did, because that's that's how we're socialized, right? Um, and so, and then also thinking about like again, what sounds are pleasurable to the ear are everything is so <laughs> enmeshed in how we're socialized, and and of course like culture as well. Um, what is what is pleasing to the ear is different, going to be different in other cultures. This to me is is tying so beautifully into what Redwood was saying about expanding your palate and like learning new tastes. And it's like our relationship to sound is, is obviously is framed by, are we in the city? Are we in nature? Uh, Like I'm super sound sensitive. That's probably like part of it is neurological. I have a condition, but a part of it could be that I grew up in the countryside and now I'm living in the city. Um, But then to apply the other lens of it, of um, respectability politics gender, power dynamics, uh, what is professional. Uh, and I just love like just tying in power, privilege, and preference even. Some of it is, it's literally like in the fabric of who we are biologically, like, but some of it is, is learned. And um, it's, it's, it's crazy to, to question why you prefer something over something else. And I think that that's, uh, that's something else I really like to, I've had fun playing with, um, with sound. It's like, uh, how, how can, how can that guitar sound be beautiful? How can that guitar sound that you played in that, in that song, um, from Dominique's episode, like, how can you make something like crackly and like, something that might be sharp, like how can you make that a beautiful sound? Um, or how, how can you like either like contextualize it so it's it's seen as beautiful or heard as beautiful or how can you... You're taking time. You're literally taking time to like investigate. Like I feel like it's almost scientific the amount of like time that you're taking to like, why is the sound this way? How can I make it beautiful? Why Why do I prefer this one? Like it's almost like a deconstruction of of a material and then you recreate you you're like really delving deep it feels that feels like a very generous interpretation of of what I'm doing I love you thank you
Um, I know you're rolling your eyes at me. You're like, oh, God. Uh, look at you narrating. <laughs> How dare you? I mean, you know, I remember when, I think when I sent you uh, one of the drafts of that song with the guitar part in it, I think you, I, because you're sound sensitive, I remember you saying something about the freak, about like, there's like a high pitch. There's something that's really like making my ears tired. someone's ears getting tired it's like you definitely don't want that to happen I mean personally I don't want someone's ears to get tired um so it's like okay how do you reconcile those those uh goals so it's like all right so I have this sound how can I so what I did was like I I cut out one of the frequencies or like a couple of the the frequencies that I thought might be more grading and I send it back to you and you were like yes so much better when we get to know a material I think it's crucial to get to know every part of it how do different kinds of people experience that material how do those stories deepen our understanding of it and the world around us it's always a good idea to start with your own personal experience so I'll start with mine Liz has just mentioned a guitar part from episode three that I had an issue with when she sent me the file I felt awkward pointing out that a specific sound was painful for me to listen to the guitar riff sounded sharp, and my ears ached a little listening to it. I didn't want to pick apart what Liz had put together for the podcast. But she said it wasn't a big deal and thanked me for saying something. She adjusted the frequency of the specific sound, took another listen, and sent it back to me. The pain I felt was gone. I think this is because I live with something called misophonia. It's a neurological condition that translates to strong reactions to particular sounds. Actually, it translates to hatred of sound, which is kind of hilarious because I think I love sound. And if I had my way, I would be producing audio all the time. But there are certain sounds I do hate with the fire of a thousand suns. A fork against a ceramic bowl. The brakes of a bus screeching to a halt. The clatter of a metal lid falling on a tile floor. These are so painful to me. My ears hurt, my heart rate increases, my face gets hot. I feel panicky and angry. I want to run from the room, and if I can't run away, I want to cover my ears and yell. Depending on the situation, this reaction ranges from socially awkward to rude to straight-up disruptive. But these are strategies to avoid pain, to avoid the urge to scream, and to squelch the desire to act out violently towards whoever is making the sound. Another fun symptom of misophonia, you feel murderous towards the people making the sounds. When I communicate my needs around sound to friends and family, they might start warning me when a trigger is about to happen. At best, they replace their metal forks with wooden ones. At worst, they raise their eyebrows and call me sensitive, don't believe the condition is real, or nod sympathetically and proceed to absentmindedly scrape their fork along their bowl for that last f***ing piece of rice. I've never been officially diagnosed, but when I read an article about the condition a few years ago, I just knew. This type of self-discovery is a familiar experience to people living with rare or recently discovered conditions. Yes, my experience of sound makes my life a bit more difficult sometimes. I avoid crowded places. I care a lot about the interior decoration of a space I'm going to spend time in. Is it industrial minimalist with concrete floors, exposed ceilings, and oh God, please no, metal chairs? <sighs> but my condition also means I am sensitive to all sounds, even the pleasing ones. I hear and notice things other people don't. I can play music by ear on multiple instruments. 
I do pretty decent impressions of friends and family. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but so I've been told. Thinking beyond my own experience, I wonder how we experience sound in different ways. Folks with tinnitus, hearing loss, or people who are born deaf. Their understanding of sound as a material is so nuanced and so revealing. Prepping for this show, I learned about Shaheem Sanchez, a deaf dancer who memorizes the vibrations in a song and melds sign language related to the lyrics into his choreography. I also listened to the reflections of a woman who lost her hearing in one ear and how that change made her all the more aware of the sounds she holds dear. What sounds would you start to memorize? What sounds or songs bring you joy? I love a clap. It, I, I think I've always loved a clap, but I especially noticed when we got our first uh, drum machine, like a, a drum machine clap is like the... It's the funniest sound to me. Especially like a side by side. You can tell the difference between like an acoustic clap. Like you can hear the room noise, right? It, there's more space. Whereas like with a drum machine clap, like it's just so weird. It's so unnatural. Immediately when I when I hear a clap or when I use a clap, like there's there's this amount of levity that gets added. What can I do when my memories of you are all but the same everybody's trying to get close there, it just like changes the energy like in one moment and I think that that's I love being able to do that I'm really into uh that like angular kind of sputtery guitar sound I it's really fun to me when like something sounds like it's like running out of gas losing steam as you're listening to it if that makes sense it's just kind of like um I, I just I think that that's a really I don't know I just really enjoy that sound so there are these playful ways of engaging with the material where musicians and composers can use sound to shape emotion but what about everyday sounds organic sounds that inspire certain emotions all on their own the sound of of kids playing like in particular like with their parent or caregiver is like I j oh god it's just like it's like too much it's like too good that sound brings me back to yeah to that time in my life I really like the sounds that the trolleys make in Philadelphia first of all Philly has trolleys they're primarily in West Philly they're just the funniest little things. I love the sound of them because I've lived in West Philly for uh, a while now and I just, it just makes me happy to hear them like chugging along. And then I think also right now because I haven't ridden on a trolley, in, I mean, since March, I feel <laughs> like nostalgic for public transportation. Nostalgia, memory, and emotion are all influences on our relationship with sound. While producing this episode, I posted a story on Instagram asking what sounds people consider precious. I put together a sound collage of people's responses.
Where did these sounds take you? Did you recognize them? Were some eerie or comforting? Did they bring up any feelings or memories? Did they place you somewhere? I'm amazed by the way sound orients us, can alter our mood or bring up memories. The two sounds I would want to memorize, my dad playing a familiar song on the guitar, and my mom cracking up. (laughs) What? Let's get a better understanding of all this sound talk as it relates to composing music, specifically the music Liz made for the show. The whole reason that we began to collaborate together was because I saw you posted on Facebook. You were like, I can write a song for someone. And I had just heard that my mentor had passed away who taught me how to center on the wheel. And I was making episode one that happened to be about clay. I just thought, Liz, you could make a minute long song for Walter Rebetz. I was like, wait, we should have a song for every episode. (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to play the song and, and then we'll talk about it. Especially because, it, you know, initially the song was uh, just like as a, you know, like a, as a remembrance. I didn't want it to to feel really sad. I, I remember the first the first version that I wrote was like really sad. Um, I think that the words pretty much stayed the same, but just the the spirit of the song was just like it made me really sad. And I was like, man, when I'm remembering somebody that I love, who's you know no longer with us I like I don't really want to feel like I, you're already grieving again finding a way to to be joyful and also like and also acknowledge the fact that like it feels really shitty to grieve somebody who's died um and then I you know I tried to learn about um Walter and the work that he did and I I learned that he had taken photographs of Hudson he's doing a photo project um I guess he went and he photographed the Hudson every day at a certain time of day I want to say while this was happening he was slowly losing his vision it's just unreal I just couldn't even yeah it was pretty pretty incredible and so something that um he and his his wife uh, both had some pretty incredible uh, things to say about about that project and uh, that process and that time in both of their lives. And I wanted to to find a way to 
I mean, I really wanted to use the the words that they used because I mean, they said it, it it's their experience. They said it perfectly. Like the, the line, uh, every day somehow a surprise the way the growing darkness can open up your eyes. Um, again, I mean, it, that speaks for itself. Just thinking about, um, how, uh, he and his wife like talked about seeing more in something, even like as he was, you know, losing his vision. Oh, and then the line, the destination becomes the doorway home is something that he said. Destination becomes the doorway home. It's one of those, it's one of those sentences that I feel like you could like think about forever and like try to pull apart forever. I'm just like, like I, every time I think I know what it means, I'm like, I actually don't even know. He seems like a really cool dude, and I was, I'm really glad that I got to, like, learn about him and, uh, yeah, try to capture, like, a little piece of him. It was cool. Then we delved into episode two with Danielle and weaving and the wool mill, and our process changed quite a bit. when we were learning about weaving with Daniel Garber, and it's something that neither of us knew very much about. I mean, I certainly didn't, and you, yeah, no. I visited a wool mill um, in that episode, and I saw these like massive machines, and I thought it was, I, I went with my microphone, and I thought it was gonna be like threads, and like, you know, and it was just like. <laughs> Um, so it was nothing like what I thought. And then I learned how to weave, um, with Danielle for like 20 minutes. She so taught press me. three again mm-hmm. and then put it back through. Okay. So undo. Yep. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll move to four and then go through. Oh yeah. Um, I was amazing at it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> No, it was awful. But like the sound of the loom was totally new to me. And so I recorded that and gave it to you. And I felt like that was the second episode was sort of marked the moment where like I handed you a bunch of sounds and was like, please incorporate these somehow. Um, And I think that it was really successful. So I'm going to play it a little bit and then I'm going to ask you. What can I do when my memories of you are all but threadbare and worn? Speaking in tongues I don't understand. You are the weaver. You, ha- you did this thing with the sound where you like made it sticky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that like fuzzy, sticky background. So I don't know, it's so good. And it made me think of the fuzz that Danielle talks about when she runs her hands over her. Oh, I love that. But anyway, can you tell me just about your process with that one? So something that really helped with that song is I wrote a guitar part and it was just like wrong. Like I was listening to it. I was like adding layers. I was singing over it and, you know, playing with those like weird like bell synth sounds. And I was like, this this guitar part is, it was like too smooth, I guess. And so all I did was I just like, I just chopped it up. 
just like like I took the track I cut it in a spot and then I like just cut out chunks of it so it went from like more traditional like finger picking uh guitar part to like what you hear in the song which is like you know just like these little like blips like fits and spurts and then you know and then also like trying to do it in a way that I mean of course like that it's like rhythmic and melodic a lot of what Danielle talked about was how it's a lot of I don't want to say trial and error but there's a lot of messing up that happens in that process or like it's it's pretty hard to make it perfect it sounds like and I, I mean, I like what you what you said about how you thought like the loom was gonna how it was you thought it was gonna be this like very like s- smooth like kind of like peaceful experience, and it was just a big loud machine. And I think that that's great. I liked the idea of you know you're making this this piece that is I mean it's made out of wool. It's like this soft thing that comes from like gentle creatures, <laughs> but then you also have like this big loud machine. You like mess up a lot and it's just it's clunky and also like sweet Uh, this is poor me from episode four with redwood Redwood's episode, um, who is a mixologist, and um, the whole—I mean, for the whole like vibe of the song was definitely inspired by how I just felt so soothed by them and the way and the way she talked, and I was just like, oh my gosh, like it really, uh, yeah, it took me places. Understanding palate and taste is really just a practice of memory and strengthening your memory. I mean, what would it be like, especially because this is our word maker and it's also our taste haver, like what would it be like for me to to talk about what I taste as fluently as I'm, you know, just talking to you? There are like those little like uh, sparkly sounds. I feel like there was like a, a lot of nostalgia for me, like when I listened to her interview. And I think, you know, a lot of that is informed by the time that we're in, which is uh, pandemic time. Uh, at least in particular, that was like the main thing that was happening uh, when we were working on that episode. And, uh, you know, Redwood is a mixologist and so much of that uh, material is about sharing and, and being in community and, uh, you know, enjoying and indulging with, uh, ideally with people that you like <laughs> and whose company you like, ideally that's what's happening. Um, and so I was, I was feeling very like wistful and nostalgic, um, which are things that I feel a lot, but especially listening to that interview. So that little sparkly sound, um, 
it it feels, I mean, you know, sparkly, magical, dreamy. There is um, in the beginning. The beginning starts with uh, this kind of like uh, swirly synth sound that reminded me of just the sound that you try to make when you spin your finger around the edge of a glass. I mean, I really, and you can achieve this effect uh, with different like mixing production uh, know-how, et cetera. But I really, I like the feel uh, of uh, a sound like pushing and pulling you while you're listening to it. My partner, Mark, is a uh, an engineer and producer and uh, something that he, he talks about a lot that really stuck with me is like... Uh, thinking about the image that a, that a song makes, like, um, when you close your eyes, because, you know, uh, if you're listening to a song on a set of speakers, um, it creates an illusion of something in the middle. There's not actually anything happening in the middle, right? You have your left and right, but our, our ears, our brains, whatever, create this illusion of this image. And so what I think is really neat about about a song and thinking about texture is like where where do which sounds fall in that image and like how how wide is the the shape that you're making is it or you know what is what is happening in the same like vertical plane um and so those are things that i i've been trying to think about more and also thinking about how like carving out space in a song so that way when, you know, you do have like a denser section that has like even more emotional impact than it would have otherwise, like the contrast is really great. I love what you're saying and I love thinking about sound spatially because it is something that moves through space. It affects our bodies and we're listening with our bodies. And I love to hear you use the words like contrast and texture because those are such visual words, um, but yet you're applying it to something that... Um, usually we can't see. I mean, some people are blessed to be able to see sound. Um, I am so jealous. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> but we love you. And please uh, email us. I want to have you on the show. When you were talking about when you close your eyes and imagine the space between and, and the picture that the song is creating, when you are editing and composing and creating a piece, what does it feel like for you physically? feeling that I get a lot uh, just with like trying to make music very generally is like, I feel like the the process usually starts with this feeling of, in fact, I mean, the, the lyrics in that song kind of uh, <laughs> illustrated perfectly. It's like wishing that I could just dump everything in my head out and spread it all out and see everything that's going on. So how do tools sort of cause an evolution, a creative progression for makers? I was thinking about this when you mentioned the like, you know, you having known me for for a minute and the evolution that the the way I make music uh, has gone on and thinking about like how I, I used to make music really like acoustic guitar, my voice felt like my reaction to feeling like I wanted to just be able to dump all my thoughts out and like knowing any other way. It was kind of more of like a stream of consciousness form of writing, again, more linear. Now, now that I use all different kinds of tools, um, I record in Logic and having this very visual tool to create has, has really helped me feel like I can better organize what I'm making. There's a lot of chopping up and moving around 
so exciting to me, especially because we're making a podcast about a lot of it is, you know, visual uh, materials, not all of it, um, but like visual artists and how they work. And I, I love hearing them describe their process because now making music in this particular way, it does sometimes feel like a visual art. With sound editing software, you literally see the waves of sound, cut them up, layer them. You become attuned to the visual language of different instruments and tempos, different speaker styles, that cadence that Liz was talking about earlier. How else is sound made visual? The performance, the way a musician embodies sound on stage and communicates with the audience. Now, in parallel of making this episode, I started learning a new language I've always wanted to learn, sign language. Learning how to communicate words with my hands, I began thinking about the role of a conductor when it comes to sound. If you look closely at a conductor, you begin to see the mathematics of music in their gestures. There is this relationship between the rhythm of our bodies and the rhythm of music. I went down quite a rabbit hole uh, hearing conductors talk about their relationship to sound, performance, uh, groups of musicians, and it made me think about how performance mirrors society and how the roles we play in our creative work can mirror, strengthen, uh, or prepare us for roles we take up in community. Can you take me with you on stage right now? Okay, sure. So, uh, let's are you like getting ready and backstage? Are you like, I want to hear, I want to take me with you. I want to, I never got to do this with you oh because God. we were on different coasts. Imagine I'm, I'm with you at a show. Ideally, if we're playing in a, in a solid venue that like has a soundtrack and you can like set everything up beforehand, I'll set every, like we'll set everything up as a band. We each do our little stations. And I love that process. That's like the most fun, something that I've been able to like <laughs> sort of recreate during quarantine is like, is the feeling of just like setting up all the gear and like the excitement that starts to mount, like that mounts as, as you're doing that, um, which is really fun. Uh, just like making sure everything is working and adjusting every little tiny thing. Cause like you have the space and time to do it. Um, and then, yeah, I find, especially on tour when you don't have a lot of like private time and space. Um, my, my two like sacred places are the car and whatever bathroom is there. Having an excuse to go to the bathroom for an extended period of time, uh, to, to do my makeup was really great. That, that kind of became like an important part of the pre-show ritual. Like if I could look out and see who was there, like I don't usually do that. Um, I'm thinking about even performing with dance theater companies that I work with. I usually try not to look at the audience because every time I think it's not going to freak me out, it really freaks me out because you can usually see at least one person's face that you know. And being able to see people that you know in the audience is, I just hate it. Part of what is important for me is to be able to uh, be performing version of myself, which isn't like a Da, da da here I am. It's not like that. It's like, but it's it is it's a it's a piece of myself. It's a, a different version of of myself. And so, um, if I if I make eye contact with like a dear friend in the audience, I'm immediately going to be ripped out of that, and I'm going to want to like what I'm saying and how I'm behaving is going to be like directed to that person, and that's not really how I want to like commune with the audience as a whole. I think that typically when when I perform, I kind of go into like a, it's kind of just like, it's like blacking out. I don't feel like conscious 
<laughs> a lot of the time. If, if we're playing a newer song, I, I definitely will be uh, in a different headspace, especially thinking about like being on tour. You know, you're, you're playing usually the same set uh, every night. And so you get really used to how things flow. And a lot of the time, like things just become like muscle memory and second nature. It feels really good. It feels like, I, I think that's what I miss the most is just like the feeling of, it's, it's a kind of like surrendering. It's interesting what you were saying earlier about your performer self because this is a, a particularly challenging interview for me because right now I'm being host uh, and I prepare for this and this is my version of performance and I'm interviewing one of my closest friends in the whole world. And so it's been really, it's been challenging for me because I want to behave in a certain way with you uh, that is authentic. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I'm not actually that person behind the microphone almost ever. Um, so I'm going to have to just do some soul searching later and like, <laughs> let me like revisit everything that I've ever done. <laughs> Now's the time to do it, baby. <laughs> so on that note, um, ah, I love hearing about um, – your performing days, um, which will come back, which will come back. We need to believe uh, the old performing days. <laughs> I shouldn't have said it like that. Oh my god! I'm so sorry. Remember when we performed? <laughs> oh my god! I'm sorry. Um, so funny. It's. I knew what you meant. Yes. <sighs> so. You haven't had a chance to perform in a, in a couple months. I know it's been really hard um, and it's painful to be away from that side of your practice. How has it changed? I'm just recognizing this is something that I, you know, have to I, I come back to time and time again. But just um, just like really trying to find routines in uh, creating and rut routines are uh, pretty crucial to uh, to most people's sanity. I'm really organized and I'm in a lot of ways a very quote unquote type A person. I'm also at the same time spontaneous. And so it's it's a weird, <laughs> those things, it's really interesting to have both of those things vying for, <laughs> for power. It's just been finding small ways to make sitting down to create something easier to, to cut down the number of steps that it takes for me to get to play when we're playing out a lot more or like when even when we're touring it's like uh you know our gear is constantly getting moved uh we were lucky enough to live in a in a house that has a a basement that is mostly usable so we practice down there and for a show for a local show in philly you know we lug everything upstairs and then we come back late and then we just kind of like leave everything upstairs and then we have to bring it back downstairs before we practice again and on the days i have little to no motivation or like <laughs> creative willpower just the the step of having to pick up my pedal board walk through the kitchen open the the door to the basement make sure the cat doesn't go downstairs don't fall down the stairs with all your crap oh god the dehumidifiers I gotta go empty that out just those little things are enough to to deter me but then when they do get past those deterrents those little excuses so many of us line up to avoid doing the things we care about most when I when I finally like pick up my guitar so just the the feeling of turning everything on hearing hearing this the little whirring sound turn everything turning on I like I'm 
in, immediately at ease. The, you know, the, sometimes the, the hurdle of getting started is the hardest part. Playing something on the drum machine, just touching my guitar, feeling something, just making any kind of sound. It's like exhaling when you didn't realize you were holding your breath. What's the most rewarding part of, of being a musician and working with sound? Making and playing with and discovering new sounds with somebody else is really, uh, it's really cool. Fi finding a way to accurately communicate a sound that you have in your head to somebody else who then helps you realize that sound Something that uh, Mark and I talk about a lot is like when you're trying to communicate what's actually the most useful is to use feeling words, colors and textures, as opposed to trying to get super technical with something. It's, it's really just more, well, what, is, what does that feel like to you? Yeah, what does it remind you of? Like you said the word sticky, sticky, dark. And again, like I said the word sparkly, warm. Again, ways to make sound tangible and physical. What are the emotions that run through them when creating a song from start to finish? Intimidation, excitement, anticipation, catharsis, frustration, <laughs> uh, de defeated, pride, surprise, acceptance. I just love ending on open-ended questions. And here are some that came to me while producing this show. What does it mean to make a podcast literally a piece of audio on the material of sound through the lens of accessibility? How can we look at this not just in relation to sound, but in relation to every part of our lives? For instance, if you look up misophonia, the funny thing is a lot of the videos or audio pieces actually sample all of the trigger sounds. It's awful. <laughs> and it makes me think that someone with misophonia didn't actually make that content. Asking questions about accessibility in relation to who is producing what is just the beginning. Well, I do write a script for each show, and the least I can do is make that script available on the show website. So the scripts will be up this summer. I'll also be committed to learning more from folks who experience the materials I care about in a myriad of ways, and including that angle in season two of the show whenever I can. And that's a wrap on season one of Material Feels. Season two is already taking shape. I'll be looking for a home for Material Feels this summer. And if it's possible, I dream of taking this show on the road. Just want to extend a big shout out to folks who've been listening to each and every episode. People who've reviewed it on iTunes. People have reached out to me, DM'd me on Instagram, texted me if you know me personally. Uh, your support keeps me going. Material Feels is written and produced by your host, me, Catherine Monahan. Subscribe to the show with whatever podcast app you use on your phone. You can also find it on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you missed any of the previous episodes, go back and listen. Share with your friends, loved ones, acquaintances, lovers, ex-lovers, crushes, frenemies, former art teachers, Instagram followers. Please spread the word and review us on iTunes. As you know, each episode is accompanied by an original piece of music by Liz DeLise. You can listen to these songs on their own on Liz's Bandcamp, 
Just look for the link in the show notes at www.materialfeelspodcast.com. Support the show and contribute to our Patreon. Material Feels is a labor of love and your support helps us continue to produce quality content and amplify the voices of artists and their materials. We split any contributions to the show with Black-led organizations in the arts on a rotating basis. This summer, we are forwarding 50% of funds from Patreon to Black Trans Femmes in the Arts, a collective of Black Trans Femmes based in New York City, dedicated to creating space for Black Trans women and non-binary femmes in the arts and beyond. Mm. Fibonacci. Fibonacci. <laughs> Fibonacci. That was so good. And to close out the season, here is a sound that is near and dear to my heart, a song I heard a lot growing up, my dad playing My Girl by The Temptations. I got sunshine through